people think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil Smells like anything you think could happen Probably will Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. Hey, this is Duray, and welcome to Pot Save the People. In this episode, we have me, Brittany, Clint, and sort of Sam. Sam's here in spirit, but he is abroad. He'll be back next week fully ready. And then we are joined by three different CEOs from the Teach for All network. I learned so much in these conversations, and it's good to be back in 2020. My advice for this week is simple. Do all the things that are on your list to do. That we make the list, then we fret about the list, and we rearrange the list, and we reorder the list, and we add to the list, and we ask people about the list, or at least I do. And then you look up, and you spend a whole day looking at the list, not doing anything on the list. In 2020, start doing it. Take one piece, and one piece, and one piece, and those pieces add up. Let's go. Hey y'all, happy new year. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. Sam is away. Sam's not with us this week, but we love you, Sam. We miss you, Sam. And this is Dre at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. So A, I hear we're bringing I, I, I with us into 2020 and I'm good with it. Like whether or not this is the start of a new decade, people can argue about, but I'm just glad I, I, I is still here with us. We can't let go of good things. We can't let go of a good thing. This break has been calamitous. Like, Trump out here trying to start wars. We've got 3,500 troops that just went over from Fort Bragg, and we are praying for their safety. We got University of Wisconsin releasing entire homecoming videos with hardly any people of color in them. And I found out that out of 30,000 undergrads, less than 1,000 of them are Black at that university. Lots of calamity in the world. But I think that we should just... We should and the ease. continent of Australia. Oh, yeah. The continent of Australia is burning. Fire. Burning. Burning. And it is like, I mean, in terms of landmass, it's like the size of our country. I mean, this is... If you can imagine the entire eastern seaboard of our country burning, that is what is happening in Australia. Lots of calamity. Plenty more that we haven't even mentioned. But I think we should, like, maybe ease back into this thing. <laughs> We've been on break. And I know that you all had some good New Year's. And I think, you know, easing back into this is important as we take on what will no doubt be a very important, if not daunting, year ahead. So what'd you all do for New Year's? Duray, I think you brought in the New Year in the most uh, glamorous and melanous way. I did. I was at, have you been a Is that the word? Melanous? You, Mel, uh, melanated? Melanated. Melanated. Melanonous? <laughs> Melanious is it. Melanonous. Melanated. Have you been to? Melanious. Melanonous. Were you in Ghana, Clint? Have you been? I've never been to Ghana. I spent a lot of time in Senegal and South Africa, but never Ghana. Yeah, I've been to Kenya, but not Ghana. It was incredible. I was in Ghana for six days, uh, and it was it was really great. I want everybody to go. I want to go back now. It was sort of beautiful to be in a place where everybody was black. It was just like everybody was black in every place. That was different. Uh, So it wasn't ever, you weren't thinking about racism or guarding yourself against it. And also went to the Cape Coast, which is uh, where the majority of slaves who came from the continent traveled through the Cape Coast in Ghana. Uh, So got to see the Door of No Return and got to see just the, the massive edifice that was built there. So it was a good crew good crowd and i can't wait to go back uh, Brittany, clint we gotta go we should do a pod there we should do like a take the pod to ghana oh we should 
My New Year's was much quieter. We went to a good friends of ours' house. Shout out to Kwame and Trisha. They are a multiracial family with lots of traditions from both of their spaces. And so it was actually really fun to be a part of all of that and to experience a little bit of all of their cultures. Um, I actually was in their wedding a long time ago, in t- a couple years ago, rather, in Tobago. And DeRay, I felt the same way. Like, I just felt so free and relaxed because everybody was Black. And then I came home to Philando Castile and Alison Sterling being killed. So I did not return relaxed, but that is a different story for a different day. Um, but we had a great time. Good friends of ours were in town. We all retired to our new crib and watched The Wiz and fell asleep on the couch watching The Wiz. And so I I enjoyed my New Year's because it was spent exactly as I wanted to in the company of great friends, great people, and a lot of love. And I got to wear sequin pajamas, so I can't complain about that. Sequence pajamas. Did the sequence fall yeah, off? Yeah, it was a look. Like, how does that work? It was a, it was just situation. No, <laughs> the sequence doesn't fall off. They're just like they're pajamas, but they were a blue sequence. And I wore the if anybody was at the live show we did a couple of years ago in New York where DeRay gave us these sparkle sneakers. Remember these Clint mm. from, from opening ceremony? This is what I wore with my sequence pajamas. It was a perfect look. That's dope. I did as, you know, many parents of two kids under three do which is you put the kids to bed and you try to make it to 12 o'clock, but you fall asleep on your couch around 10 o'clock and then you wake up and you're like, what year is it? But this year I woke up right before, but woke up, it was like 11.52. I was like, baby, we made it. We got some wine, we cheers, and then we went right back to sleep. And yeah, shout out to the parents out here uh, holding it down. Man, we didn't talk about Christmas. I'm going to say the thing that all the parents know about Christmas that we don't discuss on this podcast because we want you to listen to this podcast with your kids. But let's just say that Santa's helpers get tired and Santa's helpers may have waited until the last minute to build a little kitchen for their children and underestimated the amount of time it took to build said kitchen and may have been up till 3.30 in the morning on Christmas (laughs) Eve, which became Christmas Day. So... That's my lesson. I made a rookie parent mistake. Don't wait to build that kitchen until the night before. Build it in baby steps because you open that box and you think it's going to be like Ikea, but it is not like Ikea. <laughs> I called Trey afterwards to ask her what, what the kids did. So I'm like, hey, Isaac Saylor, what'd you do on New Year's? How was it? I'm like, Trey, did they stay up to midnight? She said, midnight where? She said, they counted down at 730. They don't know. <laughs> They don't know nothing by midnight. She said their bedtime is 8.30 and they made their bedtime on New Year's and we counted down around... Midnight who? <laughs> she said... <laughs> Tomorrow started at 7.30. I said, okay. I feel so connected to Tore right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now it's time for the news. Okay. So from a sermon to um, a mini rant here, because I found myself on this first podcast of the new year, very frustrated with something that I did not realize happened. So did you all know that prices for major branded prescription drugs increase at the top of a new year every year? And they've done that for years now. Did y'all know that? I didn't. And irrespective of the rebates that pharmacies get that do increase with the prices, the price increases are almost always passed on to the patient. Those rebates never actually hit the patient's pocket. So under and uninsured people are obviously getting hit the worst, as you can already imagine. 
The first week of 2020 hasn't even passed and already 400 branded drugs have seen a price increase of on average about 5%. The 400 pricier drugs run the gamut from popular diabetes and asthma treatments all the way to drugs for multiple sclerosis and HIV AIDS and cancer. More drug increases are expected to follow in the coming weeks. Obviously, patient advocacy groups have been pushing against this for a long time, especially in an era where more and more life-saving drugs are treated as proprietary trade secrets and people like diabetes sufferers are dying from rationing their insulin. This kind of tradition is as mind-boggling as it is absolutely and thoroughly inhumane. And even though there's a lot of banding about regarding healthcare on the debate stage, Congress hardly ever talks about this annual price increase, and they've done even less. So to their credit, Congress is expected this year to pass the Prescription Drug Price Reduction Act. But even if it's passed, it won't go into effect until 2022. And if it is passed, it will only impact those who are covered by Medicare, which is, of course, a lot of people, 44 million to be exact, but it's only about 15% of the population. So I wanted to bring this here, A, because it really pissed me off, and B, because the health policy conversation can continues at a national level, certainly during this election year. But we can't forget that this is a really urgent issue and not just a political football for everyday people. Clearly, we need a far more comprehensive and urgent solution than the one we've got now. Yeah, Brittany, I'm glad you brought this up. I, I wasn't aware of this at all. I mean, I knew that there was a lot of insidiousness in the prescription drug and pharmaceutical industry and a lot of questionable things that go on in that space. But I wasn't aware that they could raise the price of drugs without any ostensible rationale. And I went and found a report from the Harvard School of Public Health that said that Americans don't consume more drugs than their non-U.S. counterparts, but the prices can be 80 to 150 percent more in the U.S. than elsewhere for identical drugs that yield the exact same results. And I think we all know how wild and unfair and patently absurd our, our healthcare system is in terms of what it costs, and especially what it costs for those who have the least amount to spend. But the idea that the exact same drug just packaged differently is 150%, cost 150% more in the U.S. than it does somewhere else and yields the same results in those places is absurd. And we know that higher drug pricing in America is sustained by monopolies granted by the government to brand name manufacturers through patents, allowing manufacturers to set prices without regard to the value the product provides to the patient. And the U.S. also permits different drug prices for different audiences. In addition, the supply chain is very complex with pharmacies often purchasing drugs through pharmacy benefit management companies, which negotiate pricing with the pharmaceutical companies, and that adds more costs. This is interesting because it's tied to DeRay's news, which we'll talk about a little more, but the way that for-profit industries prevent government intervention from taking place to make it so that they are able to charge more for the exact same product than they should be able to be and then than they are in, in other countries is evident on multiple fronts, and, and we'll see that um, when we get to DeRay's news as well. So, Brittany, you bringing this up made me think about a story that just ran in the Baltimore Sun. And the story talks about the single most costly prescription drug that exists today. Uh, this medication is $2.1 million for a dose of this drug. It is for a rare genetic disorder called spinal muscular atrophy, and it can actually cure the disorder. This disorder kills most babies by the age of two. And the reason that this came up in an article recently is that there was a baby who is about to be two in Maryland who applied for the drug, got denied, and then 
miraculously, the denial got overturned. Uh, The pharmaceutical company won't explain why, but the doctor goes on record saying that, you know, this is the second time that he has been able to appeal and it's been successful. But it's a whole conversation about what does it mean that this one medication that can save a kid's life is $2.1 million. Uh, They talk about the fact that sometimes the denials are because the kids aren't sick enough, that there's some kids who have this disorder who uh, they have a set of genes that will allow them to live even if they'll be confined to a wheelchair or there'll be some other disability that could be prevented if they got the medication and they get denied because it will not lead to death. The idea of like what the most expensive prescription is is interesting to me. Uh, What does it mean that we have all these advances, but people die anyway? So there are kids that die every year from SMA because they get denied, not because there isn't a cure. Uh, And you've heard people talk time and time again about the fact that taxpayer money actually helps almost all of these drugs get produced in the first place. Uh, So we, we need to find a way to make these more affordable to people. Especially because people are already paying into these insurance programs. People are already paying into them and they get denied not because they don't qualify, not because their body won't take the medicine, but simply because the cost is prohibitive for the company. Uh, And this, your story, Brittany, about the artificial cost just made me think of that. So we just talked about the new year and we're just celebrating the new year. uh, And something that we always like to talk about and bring up on this podcast is history. And so thinking about the history of what this day and what this day means for a lot of different folks. And obviously, New Year is a new time to start your resolution. It's a new time to go to the gym and start your diet and, uh, you know, create a different uh, way of thinking about how you're going to move into the new year and the new decade. But something that's important to think about and reckon with is that New Year's Day had a very different meaning for Black folks in the antebellum era, which of course is the era of enslavement. And so in the antebellum era, uh, New Year's Day used to be widely known as Hiring Day, or sometimes known as Heartbreak Day, as the African-American abolitionist and journalist William Cooper Nell described it, because enslaved people spent New Year's Eve waiting and wondering if their owners were going to rent them out to someone else and potentially break their families apart. The renting out of slave labor was a very common practice uh, in the antebellum South and was a profitable practice for white slave owners and their hirers. In the book Soul by Soul by Harvard historian Walter Johnson, which uh, I highly recommend, uh, he writes, quote, of the two-thirds of a million interstate sales made by the traders in the decades before the Civil War, 25% involved the destruction of a first marriage and 50% destroyed a nuclear family, many of these separating children under the age of 13 from their parents. Nearly all of them involved the dissolution of a previously existing community, and those are only the interstate sales. Other historians estimate that over the course of chattel slavery's existence, over one million enslaved people were separated from their families. And this is important to think about because I think oftentimes when we uh, think about the history of slavery, when we study the history of slavery, there's a lot of focus on the violence of enslavement, the physical and material violence, but not talked about as often, I think, in some circles, is what family separation was and what it felt like and what it felt like to live under the ever-present threat that you might at any moment, uh, and especially on a day like New Year's Day, be separated from your family. Um, Some enslaved people were put up for auction on that day or held under contracts that started in January. Uh, These transactions also took place all year long and contracts could last different amount of times. But like I said, January 1st was a specific time when this was more common because it was part of the larger economic cycle in which which most debts were collected and settled 
going into the new year. And so I just wanted to bring this up and also bring up the fact that New Year's Day represents the day the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. And so it is a day that represents both the best in some ways uh, and the worst of what slavery was, uh, both its cruelty and the separation of families, but also it's what led to its eventual abolition. And so just something to think about as we enter this new year and how this is history, but also it's important to think about what this means for other folks around the world and how uh, a lot of folks are entering 2020 under a very different set of circumstances than many of us. Yeah, Clint, I'm really glad that you brought this up. And I grew up knowing some of this. Um, and it really just brought to mind two things. One, you know, the end of the year, the beginning of the new one symbolizes so much for so many people. I'll never forget just in terms of kind of the financial element of that time of year, being an executive director and knowing that so many people felt their most charitable, quote unquote, at the end of the year. So a lot of the big gifts that we were waiting on and that we were asking for would come in right before the end of the, the year, right before the clock struck 12. Um, and we'd be watching those numbers really closely. And to think about the difference between charity and solidarity, people giving the pennies from their pocket or their couch cushion um, versus actually standing for a different system all the time and not just some of, of the time, it just brought to mind the juxtaposition of those two things, knowing full well that a day that I would often spend watching to see if our bank account rose for our organization um, that served majority Black children um, was also a day that my ancestors often, that our ancestors often spent praying for the best possible circumstances in an already atrocious system. It also just made me think of the triumph of our people. I grew up going to watch night service, which was really important uh, being the daughter of a black pastor and liberation theologian who pastored a church where Dredd and Harriet Scott went back in their day. Um, watch night service meant that we went to church around 10 or 1030, and we literally brought in the new year praying and praising God that we made Made it and recognizing that that watch night tradition comes from New Year's Eve 1862 moving into Emancipation Day in 1863 watching and waiting for that victory that freedom that emancipation that liberation that is the tradition that I grew up in and then on New Year's Day, we would gather together as a family and eat a big meal with those black eyed peas that are traditional, those collard greens that are traditional, because it was a moment of celebration. So I'm just thinking, given the news that you brought about how we are, I think, as black people constantly forced to take trial and turn it into triumph, and what it would mean for us to actually just be able to triumph of our own volition and not have to have that be the result of some terrible degradation. You know, Brittany, I'm happy you brought up the black eyed peas and rice, hop and john, as they call it in some parts of the country, because I wanted to talk about how so many of the things that are just commonplace are actually rooted in either some vestige of enslavement or directly come from a tradition. And hop and john is actually one of those things. So hop and john, uh, black eyed peas. It's interesting when you look at the history of Hop and John or how Black Eyed Peas sort of came here, it's rooted in a long African tradition of rice and beans. And there are some scholars who trace it back to Ghana. There are some scholars who specifically look at the need for sharecroppers to find slaves who have a certain skill in rice and beans, like growing rice and beans was one of those things. There's also a really interesting line of, of research around uh, rice and beans, specifically on New Year's, that talks about the transition from it being a food solely that the enslaved ate to a delicacy that owners ate. 
which I thought was interesting. But it just is a reminder that so many things that people call the American tradition are actually rooted in are byproducts of or the fruit of the labor of people who were enslaved. So earlier last year, we talked about the Statue of Liberty was actually built as a commemoration to free people. Uh, we've talked about, you know, in the 1619 Project, the whole thing is just a reminder of the institution of slavery and sort of what came after the beauty that Black people brought to this country and plug for Clint is that in the 1619 Project, Clint's poems, boom, boom. Clint, I'm happy that you brought this here because this is something that I had no clue. And this too is a reminder that like, we just got to start teaching people better in school. We are all uh, adults. And every week I feel like we're learning new pieces of American history that like we are learning either because of our work outside of the pod, we're talking about it because we have to bring it here. But you think about all the people, including us, who just a couple years ago didn't know any of this stuff. Uh, and we have a collective responsibility to make sure that these things that we highlight as stories that people don't know uh, soon become things that everybody knows. And just in case my mama is listening to this episode, I did go to church before I went to my friend's house. I went from seven to 10 instead of watching night yes. service. And I did have my black eyed peas and collard greens the next day. Reggie's dad is an incredible, incredible cook. And we all went over there and had our traditional meal. So my news is actually about filing your taxes. For those people who listened all the way back at the beginning episodes, uh, on the second episode of Pod Save the People, I interviewed a senior official in the Obama White House who helped put the budget together. And one of the things he said, because I was like, can't the IRS just like filling your taxes? Like they definitely, you know, this is the whole point of having a W-2s that like they clearly know how much money you got because they took taxes out of it. So it seems that instead of us having to like log in all our W-2s every year, like they could actually just pre-populate it and then we would figure it out. And he was like, TurboTax and H&R Block have colluded and lobbied to prevent easy filing from the IRS. And that was the first time that I'd ever thought about that the tax preparation lobby was like a thing and they might be doing anything. Well, in 2020, the new news is that the IRS has a new agreement with the tax software industry that prohibits the companies from hiding their free options from search engines and allows the IRS to offer its own tax return software in competition with TurboTax. So this all came out of a ProPublica report in 2019, April 2019, that showed that TurboTax deliberately hid the free file page from search engines. So free file programs offer free tax prep software to people with incomes below $69,000, which is about 70% of the U.S. population, and free, quote, fillable forms for people making more than that. They have to offer these programs. So that means that about 70% of people in the United States could actually file their taxes for free. But the leading software companies actually hid the results so that when you searched for it, you just literally couldn't find it. So you would be paying for TurboTax or paying for H&R Block, and you actually didn't need to pay for that at all. And the IRS wasn't offering or advertising a free file program because of this agreement with the text preparation software companies. And now that's gone, which is great. The process of paying taxes is unpleasant enough. Taxes serve a purpose in a society, and it is important that we have shared resources, but it is a cumbersome process, and it doesn't have to be that bad. And now it is amazing because I'm hoping that so many more people will be able to use the free filing program in 2020 now that the restrictions are off. And by the way, like, who knew that this was a thing? Who knew that the tax preparation lobby was so strong? 
I mean, <laughs> when you're trying to turn a profit, your lobby, <laughs> your lobbying efforts are going to be really strong. I mean, listen, in fiscal year 2018, H&R Black had an annual revenue of $3.1 billion from 23 million people who filed their taxes with them uh, online. TurboTax had a $1.5 billion profit that same fiscal year. It expects to grow by 10% the next fiscal year. And the CEO was paid $20 million. As you already shared, ProPublica blew the lid off of this and showed that TurboTax has been up to this for 20 years. And between their lobbying tactics and these things called dark pattern customer tricks, they have been doing this for a long time. So these dark pattern customer tricks essentially lead the customer to do something on the webpage that it wouldn't otherwise do. So they gave an example. So you're going through and you're filling out your taxes and there is a prominent feature um, called the deluxe edition, which costs about $100 and it will say, that this is the one you should use to maximize your deductions. And that phrase right there has probably been focus grouped and tested because that is the thing that makes people take action. So users could initially click on that deluxe software and then never be offered the choice to go to the free edition, even if the free edition would produce the same amount of deductions and still maximize their deductions as their $100 deluxe package. I mean, it's just simply disgusting. And as you can imagine, the people who could least afford to um, be taken in this way were the ones who suffered most. So it was people with disabilities, people who were unemployed, students, and even members of the military who were found to have done the most overpaying because of the work that TurboTax was doing to misdirect them all this time. And this is people's gripe with the system of capitalism. This is, is the frustration, right? It's not just that there are always losers in order to be winners. It's that the losers are almost always the people who the system made more vulnerable in the first place to its own benefit. So capitalism is a system that creates marginalization so that it can go and exploit the marginalized. It creates the class that it needs to prey upon to exist. I cannot imagine how a CEO who makes $20 million a year can go and lay his head down at night knowing that his salary came from defrauding people like that. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not 
eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Today's interview is a little different than our usual one-on-one. We're speaking to some of the people behind Teach for All. Teach for All has 53 different individually-led organizations, and they do work together to knowledge share. I sat down with CEOs from three individual groups, each from a different African country. We got James from Teach for Uganda, Daniel from Teach for Ghana, and Falawe from Teach for Nigeria. Let's go. Thank you all for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Let's go around with introductions first. Yeah, uh, thank you for having us, DeRay. Uh, it's James Kasagarinaitwe from uh, Teach for Uganda. Hi, DeRay. I'm Folawe Omikunle, and I'm from Teach for Nigeria. And I'm Daniel Goche uh, from Teach for Ghana. So for people that don't know much about the programs that you run, can you just tell us how you got involved and what is the, what's the goal? Uh, you know, I ask because... There are a lot of people who either don't understand, sort of, they barely understand teaching here, Lord knows, and they definitely don't understand it in other countries, and then what teacher prep looks like or what the state of education looks like. I was a teacher for Haiti, 
in January, uh, and that was incredible. And the way they do it is very different than the way the core was here. I can only imagine that's true for each of you. So we'll start with whoever wants to start. Yeah, I think because there's always a longer version and a short version, but maybe Daniel does the better, so short version, all for hours. So you guys want to start? Yeah. Okay, so for me, how I got involved in the in education space, first, my background is in, in education. My background is in international law and diplomacy. And I always wanted to become a diplomat. But I started off my career as a school administrator in a school in Lagos, in a Montessori school. What and in that, it, This was um, kids between the ages of 18 months to six years old. And so while working in this preschool, there was this little girl, an orphan girl called Uduamaka, who was enrolled in the school. And this girl couldn't speak a word of English. Um, in comparison to the kids who were attending the school, it was like day and night. And um, I remember when the teachers gathering one day and saying they really didn't understand why the director of the school would allow for a girl like that to be enrolled at the school. She was about four years old. And in Lagos, I lived on the mainland and this school was on the island, which is a much more privileged area. So when I'm driving home, I see the kids who are begging for arms and I see the kids and I picture this little girl called Uduamaka in, in like their, like, in, you know, in their lives. Or I just, I, I see them in my school. And this was because within six months, the transformation that this little girl experienced was just beyond ima like my imagination. Um, she was completely transformed and I only imagine the number of kids who were on the streets who could get the same access and the same opportunity just as her. At that point, it just wasn't enough for me to remain as a school administrator teaching in that school and working in the school. I wanted to reach more. I wanted to do more. So I joined another um, organization called Association of Private Educators in Nigeria. And I joined them because of their vision, which said one day every Nigerian child will have access to qualitative education. While I was working with them, they only focused on the top and the elitist schools. And I worked there three years and I said, you know, there is no way we're going to reach all Nigerian children except, you know, we actually went to all of the kids and all the schools. So I heard about Teach for Nigeria and this group of people um, who were trying to start this movement to recruit graduates. Like, you know, I just got so excited. I went and did my research. I saw Teach for India and I was really inspired by Teach for India. I quit my job in 2016, joined the group and didn't earn a salary for two years. And that's how the journey started. Boom. That's powerful for <laughs> Um, I mean, for me, <clears throat> to just give a, um, a context of Ghana, uh, it's a very small country in West Africa, and the country is divided into 10 regions. So how America is divided into 50 states, Ghana is divided into 10 regions. And um, historically, when colonization started, it started on the southern part of the country. So as you travel north, um, education did not penetrate those regions for a very long time. Um, but I also do come from a, a middle-class family, so my parents could afford to take me to some of the good schools in the country. Um, my parents got posted to work in the northern part of Ghana. So as any parents would want for their kids, they wanted to put me in some of the best schools in that particular region. Um, however, the school they found, uh, which was St. Gabriel's, we had about 80 students in the classroom, uh, teachers barely showed up. It was not what you would call a great education. <laughs> So you can imagine if that's what is happening in one of the top schools in the northern region, you could just imagine what is happening at the schools who are not these top schools. Um, so long story short, my mom decided and said, look, if, if my kids are going to get, you know, 
the quality education, a fair chance, a life, she had to move us back to the southern part. So we came back to the southern part of the country. I was put in the private school system. Uh, my classrooms were decorated. My teacher showed up on time. And uh, because of that, I got opportunity to come to the States to go to some of the best schools in the world. But I always go back home to check in on my friends. And these were people that... Back in the northern region, you know, they'll probably be like first, second, and I'll probably be like around the fourth, fifth. So it dawned on me that I was just lucky. It wasn't because I was smarter than them. It was just because I had better opportunities in life. So my trajectory just changed that way. So trying to figure out how I could do something to make sure that that is not the case for you know, the next generation coming after us. Um, that's one side of the story. The other side, too, is coming to the U.S., I always wanted to go back home and start a pharmaceutical company. So that's how it led my trajectory into biomedical engineering, worked in the pharmaceutical world and so forth. And I noticed companies like Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson, but it was nothing like that in Africa. So we needed something that would serve or compete against the Pfizer's and the Genentech's and, and so forth. But we couldn't do that if education systems were not strong to generate the scientists and people that we need on the continent. So that's how I was trying to figure out what can I do to plug into um, education. And um, one of my close friends had just finished Teach for America. So he, his name is Abdul, he's in Texas now. <clears throat> so he reached out to me when I was at Cornell. I was like, Daniel, I know you're passionate about education. I just finished Teach for America, and I think this is a model that can be replicated in, in Ghana. I said, okay, yeah, sure, I'll take a look at it. But we started studying the Teach for America model and realized, oh, look, this is, this is making some real impact here. So we're like, well, let's go start Teach for Ghana. And then when we're doing our research, we noticed that there was Teach for India. There was, I mean, all these partner organizations across the globe, but there's no program in Africa. That to me just stopped me in my tracks because I felt like if there was any continent in the world that needed leadership reform and needed to build a certain sense of possibility in our kids, it, it had to be the continent of Africa. So that drove me, uh, quit my job, moved back home and, and started Teach for Ghana. And um, here we are. Boom. Um, my story is not much different, but mine really comes from the communities that for the kids that we serve today. Uh, I was born and raised in southwestern uh, Uganda to a mother who was a primary school teacher and uh, a father who was a peasant farmer who raised cows. I was raised on a cow farm. Uh, walked to school barefooted. Uh, my teachers uh, showed up some, but uh, I had a role model a teacher actually who believed in this kid who was very inquisitive. Um, Unlucky, uh, by the age of four, uh, two of my sisters died with measles. By six, my mom took cancer, and by 10, my father with HIV and AIDS. So I was raised after that, 10, raised by my grandmother who could not read, uh, like formally read, but could tell, you know, X's and, and ticks and, and could, could say, you didn't do well here, you did well here, go back to school. And so really, I was at the verge of dropping out. I mean, uh, I, I finally graduated thanks to the, the support of this teacher who believed in me, the best student in my county. I mean, I had the best grades in a county of only four schools, and we are only two who made it out. And so uh, that time, uh, to get to the most elite high school in my area, you had to pay about $300 for the semester. Uh, my grandmother and I couldn't afford, because at the time my father passed, uh, he had used all the resources to pay for his HIV, and by the time he died, there was just like two cows and barely a piece of land for us to survive. And so it was difficult. Um, so other kids went to school, I couldn't. And so after one month, after kids had reported to uh, secondary school, uh, I realized that the, the opportunities for me there were bleak. And uh, at 11 years old, my, my grandmother 
heard from someone that if you need your son to actually get a, an education, you have to send him to the president of the country. It's a long story. Uh, I sold my one goat. We had a goat. I got my first shoes, got on a bus across the country to ask the president for a scholarship. So I, I tell people here, kids who I meet in the U.S., like if I, at the time when there was President Obama, if I told you to go meet President Obama from your high school in rural Georgia, for example, how would you meet President Obama? And they're like, no. So for me, it took me three months. I would knock at the gate. The soldiers would send me back home. They, I would go back every day. And finally, they got so tired of this kid who is persistent. And they said, well, you come back in April. The first lady and the president will be back here and we'll make sure you get in. So when I returned in April, they were there for Easter holidays. They let me in to the father of the president. Finally, I ended in front of the first lady in my country. She gave me the first scholarship. Uh, luckily, she didn't turn me away and uh, sent me now to Kampala, where the capital where I, I went to school with kids from elite families, kids of doctors, physicians, politicians. And after high school, um, I got a, a great uh, opportunity to come and study in the U.S. And also that was through my volunteering. So I volunteered with an American company that was putting solar lighting systems in rural communities and schools. And I was excited for that because in my village, I studied with a it was called a kerosene candle. It was this candle made of margarine cup and you put a wick and put light and kerosene. That's what I used to study. So when I saw that these Americans were coming and were putting lighting systems in schools, I was excited. They were looking for young people who would do this work. I applied, I went, and it was there that these Americans said, well, you're so passionate about this thing. You're always working hard. What do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to be a doctor president or pilot they're like no 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 that is a lot you just have to be a doctor you just so what do you want to do i said i want to go to university university we call it university not college back home they said college and i said yes they said my husband and i will give you the support you need to finish your college education and so that's how i ended up at florida state and graduating among the best and then working here in new york with the global health corps and then eventually I would return home to visit my grandmother and I went to my rural primary school uh, where kids still come to this day barefooted. The roofs were falling in. Uh, the kids, some of them were studying outside and still there was like one kid making it out really to get it. And so I thought about, I may never be a doctor. I may never be maybe a politician, but if I can be part of developing the next generation of Ugandans who can have this almost similar story as mine to achieve their fullest potential, I would know that I would have succeeded. For me, that is success. And so I did my research. I worked in some of the NGOs developing leadership led by Americans. I wasn't satisfied until I took a journey to India. And it was in Bengaluru, struggling with rickshaws and everything that I learned about Teach for India. And then I went, uh, one immersion, Folawe was there. Uh, and uh, they had, had heard of Daniel. There's one Ghanaian guy who is trying to do something in Africa for young people. And I was like, I'm going to be part of that team. I'm going to be part of the change that we need in Africa. And that's how I ended up and my colleague and started to teach for Uganda. Boom. There yeah. we go. Yeah. I love it. Now, one of the things that I've always found interesting about Teach for All is that you, all of you, the people in roles like yours, like the leaders of the programs, uh, get to shape the program for your communities uh, with an understanding that the education needs, the needs for teachers, the needs for students are very different depending on the place. Uh, what does that look like for you? Like, how is it different? And, you're, you know, I, when I went to Haiti, you know, what they're doing on Teacher Prep is just very different than what I went through in Teacher America, you know, and school is only from eight to noon. So that's just like, a, that is a different thing too, you know? So I'd love to know, like, what's the big goal? Or I don't even know if we say big goal anymore. Who knows? <laughs> but what's, the, uh, what's the big goal in, in your work? I'd like to say that we're all working towards addressing this huge leadership challenge. 
Um, you know, we're all trying to develop this critical mass of leaders who are going to fight educational inequity. I was sharing this morning, and again, I'm going to share how I describe the challenge we're facing as a jigsaw puzzle. And there's several pieces to it. And we need as many leaders as possible who will commit to the different pieces and, and prefer the solutions to them. So we have the same model that we've adapted and contextualized to our own context, where we also recruit our most outstanding and promising young graduates um, young professionals and also existing teachers. And we take them through a, a two-year fellowship program where they teach in underserved communities. And then we're training them all through and giving them the, the opportunity to experience the leadership for themselves and also exposure to the issues that are challenging the educational space. So for us, it starts with this two-year journey, but then the journey really starts and the work really starts after two years. So it's very similar to the to the. Teacher. I guess my push is what about Nigeria? So I think about... Um, um, like I taught in, I taught in New York, but I, I helped lead human capital in Minneapolis and Baltimore. And one of the things that was really different about Minneapolis was that like the need for bus drivers was very different, right? Or like the certification requirements in Minneapolis completely changed how we can recruit. Whereas in Baltimore, as a human capital person, I had the power to make certificate. I could just give you a certificate. Like I could do it with a stroke of a pen. Minneapolis, it was like this board and the board didn't like us and the board hated teacher. You know, it's just like a nightmare. So what, um, I'm trying to understand like what about the context of Nigeria, for instance, like what what's like your, is it easier to recruit women, harder to recruit men? Is it pre-K your folk? Like, I don't know, like, what does that look like? So in Nigeria, the national policy states that for you to be in the classroom as a teacher, you need to have a minimum teacher certification requirement, which is the national certification in education. It's the NCE. And so what we've done is we recruit graduates from diverse backgrounds, but we have partnership with an institution that allows for us to ensure that every fellow who goes through our program has a professional diploma in education. So, you know, it says that you need to have a minimum teacher certification certification, but doesn't necessarily mean that the teachers who are going to the colleges of education or who are going to university to study education have the quality um, that they need to be excellent teachers. So for us to really allow for our, our teachers to teach for those two years, we have this partnership that allows for them to have a certification in teaching. How many kids in the school system? How big is the core? Can you give us a sense of the scale of the impact you're trying to make? So currently, we're, we have 217 fellows who are in our program. We're in our third year of the fellowship program. And we have 44 alum who have completed the program. And we, we currently place in primary schools. And so we place between primary one, so that's grade one and grade five. And we are currently reaching about 13,000 pupils. There's an average of 60 pupils in the classroom where we're teaching. Um, and so what we have is... 60 kids? That's 60. a lot of kids. Oh, yes. Yes, that's, that's the average. I thought my 35 was a lot. 60 so is a lot. In our, so we, in our, I think we, we underestimated the numbers when we initially started in 2017. And when we realized this and just the pressure on our fellows in 2018, we then decided to start placing two fellows in a classroom that had more than 40 pupils. Well, I guess so. Um, yes, because over, like overpopulation um, of students, and it's like a big issue in our schools or in our context, so... Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, to give the context in Ghana, I think for us, the challenge we were facing was the things we wanted to do versus the policies that existed and the realities of the system. So to give you concrete examples, Ghana, you have more than 50 different languages, right? And each region has its own language, its own culture, and so forth. 
In our placement policy, we decided to bring the country together. If let's say you come from the northern part, we want to place you on the southern part so you can understand the culture and things that happen in the southern part. So when you become a leadership when you occupy leadership positions, the decisions you make are very much informed, right? It's not biased towards where you were just born and where, where you grew up. That's our placement policy. Now, when you're getting into the primary levels, uh, there's an education policy that says the teachers that are teaching from grade one to grade three have to teach in the local language. That kind of doesn't work well with our placement policy because if you're coming from the north, you're placing in the south, it means you don't understand the language in the, in the southern part. So for us, the recruitment was more like, how do we navigate around these things and weave through the system, making sure that we're working within the system, but we're also not losing who we are and we're still being able to do the things that we want to do. So in the beginning years, we decided, look, we're now going to place our fellows from grade one to grade three. We'll place them from grade four upwards because that way we can navigate around the, that policy and then over time try and see how we can best plugging into grade one to grade three. So those were some of the challenges we faced. And the other thing to be noticed was when we go to university campuses to recruit, Teach for Ghana up till today happens to be the only organization that you will find on university campus recruiting individuals to go to the classroom. You don't see anyone else. So young people in Ghana are not being, they're not being given that opportunity to go and teach at all. Everyone, all the companies you see, like, you know, the KPMGs, the PWCs, I mean, the top private companies. So the best and brightest brains we have in the country have been channeled into a certain direction without anyone telling them there's an alternative pathway. For us, that was a huge advantage, but that was also a wake-up call to us that what are some of the things that young people in Ghana have been exposed to? And can we serve to be that organization that's you know, exposing the next generation of leaders in our country to really understand what is happening in our communities, what is happening in the classrooms, and, and so forth? The third one is um, mindset of the communities that we work in. So, for example, if you have a parent who probably took their first child to school, went through a broken education system, the child graduates, comes back home, and is probably working with their parents on the farm, that parent doesn't see the, the return on investment of taking that child to school. So to convince that parent to take the second child to school, the question they ask you is, look, this is my first kid. I took this child to school and this child is in the house with me today. What is the guarantee that if I take the second kid to school, I'm going to see any benefits in that? And that is um, a very convincing argument that they make. And it's also a challenge for us because what we're trying to do is a long-term solution. It's not going to happen you know, one year or two years. So those mindset development between the parents and the school system and the things we're trying to grapple with. But I think over time, once they see that their kids, there's a certain level of sense of possibility, they're much more lively. They see a teacher in, the, in their house, you know, trying to figure out like, how is your child doing? How can I be supportive of your child? They begin to see those little changes that gives them hope. Um, so those are a uh, few of the intricacies that we are trying to weave as far as uh, the Ghanaian context is, uh, is at play. Yeah, and in, and in Uganda, I mean, it's not ma any different. So in Uganda, you have the system that was really set out colonially to, to fail us. Like, so, um, and, and it's sad that for those years since 19, we got independence in 1962, the reforms are now coming like as, of, like as we speak as of today. So system-wise, uh, if you needed to be a teacher, basically you finish seven years of primary school and then four years of secondary school, then whether you've gotten like a, a it's called a, a credit which is about 50 and above in english and math you can go and be a teacher anywhere and so you now find that most 
people who fail to make it to higher levels of education, they choose teaching as a last resort. And so I, I want to give you a context that uh, in our country, 78% of the children or of our communities even live rural in rural communities. Schools are on average about 10 kilometers from a family home, meaning a kid will walk 20 kilometers per day. So you have unmotivated or not well-qualified uh, teachers who have been raised through the system. They are also coming long distances. They are teaching kids who are, one, hungry, two, walking long distances, and three, coming from broken, probably broken homes. In the region, the first region we placed in was the region where the war came through before we got this government that is in power. And so you had all these issues going on. And then on top of that, there's no like teacher professional development that is helping these quite young people, but also who came to education because they had also failed. So we really studied and understood that actually we are in trouble. And Uganda, I don't know whether you've known, we are 40 million people, 80% are under 30 and median age is 15. So we literally we have half the country in school. And so the realization was, was like, wow, we need to do something now or our future is bleak. And so as Daniel said in Ghana, so then you have these families, the communities where we work, where you say, well, like, why should I send my son to school, my daughter to school? Because I see when they come out, they have to carry sand, they have to, to drive the motorbikes. Like what's the game change here? What is it going to be different for me and, and for my children? So we started on a level of, one, we need to work the mindset of our young graduates who come from universities. Some of them we hire from public universities, which have let some of these kids have worked hard, have passed, and have gone on to public seven universities, which means that they come from some of these communities. Like 80% come from communities that have faced inequity and injustice. And and so so they understand. So we knew that then they would be able to motivate their communities and their parents because they know the challenge firsthand. And then number two, then we will have to work, after the mindset, we'll have to work with now really rallying the community. In, in Uganda, the church is a big is a big thing. Like uh, religion is a big thing. So, so they had to go to churches, mosques, and communities and really drum up and say, we have new teachers who have a different thinking. We They're working with the school. We are present because some units have just came up with a report 64 percent also of our teachers are absent in, in class so how can kids learn so then you have to also tell parents we have new teachers with new motivation and then bring and then when the kids come to school are they going to learn so that's number three so if they're in school then they are going to make sure that they learn like they, they we are working with the teachers the the, the community the Parents Teacher Association, we have a school committee, and the kids are learning. Then the other issue that we felt too, um, so there's UNG and now climate change is affecting us, all of us. When droughts would come, uh, the national government doesn't have a policy on providing uh, a midday meal for kids in Uganda. I don't know about in Ghana and Nigeria, they will share. So for us, the public school kid cannot get a midday lunch, so the parents must provide. So when droughts happen in Uganda, and the the parents are not able to produce the right amount of food uh, to sell, and so kids come to school hungry. So now we had to work with our young leaders, we call them teacher leaders, to work with them around to sensitize parents to bring at least you know a kilogram of, of maize, a kilogram of beans to prepare. And in all our schools, we are now in, in two districts, um, 20 schools now, uh, reaching over 20,000 kids, and our children are eating a meal. And that is may not sound like very sexy in terms of development uh, indicators, but if kids can't eat, they can't be able to learn. And so that is the context that we started in, and that's, that's where we are, and that's what we are pushing. And there are many other things that we have done, but so far, that's what we are seeing. I can imagine what it's like to know the context really well 
and then to start something out of like you you started these things you started these like things that didn't exist and pushing in places where education either has not been valued or hasn't been valued in ways that we know it should what have you learned since you started like what i can only i think about all the things i learned both in the classroom and then when i used to lead inside of school systems i was like well i didn't even i thought it was bad didn't i was like that you know like i feel like we learn so much once we are leading it yeah what have you learned so before i got into teach for nigeria and even like when this journey started for me i was faced with the narrative the alarming stats like currently nigeria has the largest number of out of school children in the world where the world capital poverty and we have 60% of our grade 6 pupils who are unable to read and write whether in english language or in their native language and we recently just had one state where 33,000 teachers primary school teachers were administered a primary 4 grade 4 test and 21,780 of them failed so when you when you think about the narrative and just the crisis like it's so overwhelming but what I've learned is that there are assets in, in, in our communities and there are assets in our nation. And I think there's such huge potential that is just waiting to be tapped. When I think about Teach for Nigeria and I think about my first few donor meetings and trying to galvanize champions who will support for the launch of our work. And people will say to me, you will never find young Nigerians who are going to dedicate two years of their lives to teach in some of the most underserved communities for two years, like it's impossible. Like young Nigerians want immediate gratification and they're not going to delay that for anything. In our first year of the program, we had over 12,009 applications. Whoa. We're only looking to start with 60 fellows. <laughs> I think for me, that was a confirmation that our youth and our young leaders were tired of the narrative. An average Nigerian will tell you all the issues that, that is facing the country from corruption to unemployment to lack of education like they would highlight all of these problems but then when you get to the conversation around so what do we do like who would fix this you know then everybody starts to look but i think for me like this experience has been that nigerians were only just waiting for a platform in our three years of operation we've had ninety-eight thousand registered applications to our program and we've only recruited 258 and so for me it says to me that there's an appetite for change there's an appetite for you know changing the narrative and just doing something beyond oneself and that for me is the, the biggest lesson that i've learned on this journey yeah, yeah. um i would say there are three things the first one is be true to teach for all network anytime i visit a new country um i like to spend some time in a classroom just to understand how kids have been educated in different parts of the world. And when I walk into these classrooms, I try to compare what I'm seeing, you know, Asia or America to what I'm seeing in, in our classrooms in Ghana. And I can tell you for sure and emphatically that kids in Africa are some of the smartest group of people you will meet. They're very easy to manage. They pay attention they go through all kinds of barriers and hurdles to get into the classroom. We are failing them by not putting the right individuals in front of them. That's the first thing I'm learning. And the other thing too is Africa is not in control of its assets. Regionally, but when you look at the countries itself. And when you're not in control of your assets, you can't really do the things you truly want to do. And the third one is much more personal, which is if you have a great vision, execution and tenacity is what brings it to life. Because... To be an entrepreneur, there are just days where everything seems to be falling apart. 
nothing seems to be working. Every email you check is just not good news. And sometimes you begin to wonder, in my case, why would you leave a, you know, a tracking pharmaceutical world to do this and, and stuff? And in those moments, you just have to take a step back and, and remind yourself, what do you have to do as part of your generation to make sure the next generation has a better life than you? And that's where tenacity comes into play. So those are the things I'll say my, my big three um, takeaways um, so far. I'm sure there are more that I'll learn along the journey. <laughs> I feel like adding something to what Daniel has just said. And I've seen how when communities, head teachers, teachers, government stakeholders, students, parents buy into a vision, just how much magic could happen when that happens. And I'm seeing that in our schools. Like I can share tons of examples and stories of how like when all of these guys are working together to make like just what we've seen in terms of impact in the schools. And I just wanted to say I've also seen the potential of that. Yeah. yeah. And for me really has been like this this idea that sometimes you hear the problems of Africa, yeah, 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 very complacent or whatever. But I've realized that we have an incredible generation of young Ugandans, uh, and I say Africans because I just came back from Ghana who are tired of the status quo, are tired of the systems that are not working for us, and they are willing to come from any part of the country or any, any, any qualification to devote their time to solve these problems. And that is really exciting because when you know that you went through this challenge yourself and realize that you had the lucky way of, uh, opportunity of making it out, you always wonder, is there anybody? And as an entrepreneur, when you're struggling, you always wonder, is there anybody out there who really thinks? Because when I went to school in the U.S., I mean, I went through the state and I was able to volunteer in communities here. And I saw like there were many young people who were volunteering, who were serving in and I always wondered what's wrong with us. And so when I started to teach for Uganda, and I have seen that there are young people, they are coming from, you know, chemistry. I have two young people who came from, like, a uh, uh, medical background. They are in medical lab and technology, and I asked them on our selection, why the heck would you want to leave medicine and medical technology? You could be making money and come. And the guy was like, look, when I'm working with patients, I see problems of our country, not necessarily much about health, but about education, about how do we curb our challenges right from at the community level. And so for me, that excites me. And so when we train them now, we train them to their community leaders. So your one leadership of self, leadership of community, and leadership of your kids to steward them to wherever they want to be. So when they come to the community level, the two of them told me, I want to be able, like, when I'm working with my kids, visit their families and communities and work with them on health challenges that they face. And at the same time, I want to be able to volunteer at the community where, at the community health center, where I can be of help. Because we believe right now that if we are going to make any difference, change has to start from the community. And so we've worked with Teach for All and others to create these communities of practice where we have religious leaders, uh, health center leaders, uh, we have teachers, uh, parents, and now we come together at the church because mostly <laughs> these communities even hardly to find a place where to convene. We convene with kids, parents, teachers, religious leaders, uh, management, community, and we envision what the future of our children, what the future of us would look like, you know, and government leaders. And when you hear, you see a child, you know, telling you that, I like the Teach for Uganda teachers because they don't beat me up when I, I don't get a 10 out of 10 on mathematics. And I think leadership should be like that. And I love my teacher because they show me the direction rather than beat me about where I should be going. You feel like you're inspired. And I think for me, that's what inspires me to know that we are going somewhere. One of the things that we ask everybody on the pod 
is that there are a lot of people who feel like they have done everything they were told to do. They emailed, they called, they protested, they shut it down, they testified, they did all the things, right? And the world hasn't changed in a way that they thought it was going to change and that they have watched it happen, right? They were like, we did it, and then nothing changed. Uh, What do you say to those people? So um, I would like to share a story. And this is a story of a hummingbird. And this story was some happened somewhere in Africa. And there was this forest, and this forest um, caught fire. And this huge fire took over the habitat of, you know, thousands of animals, lions, elephants, tigers, snakes, name them. And the animals all got out of the forest, and they watched their habitat burn down and... Everybody just stared at this overwhelming wildfire that had taken over their their habitat. And this hummingbird just kept going back and forth. And they observed this bird. And if you're familiar with the species of birds, you know that the hummingbird happens to be one of the smallest species of birds. And with its tiny beak, this bird was only going to the river to pick water and it was dropping it on, on this wildfire. And this guy stared and the elephant with its large trunk watched the hummingbird and said to it, it's like, what do you think you're doing? And he says, I'm doing the best that I can do. And so when you look at the challenges and just how enormous it is, and we, I, I think about the education crisis in Nigeria as this forest that is burning and just all the other issues um, around the world and across the world. And I only imagine that we need to develop and find as many dedicated hummingbirds as possible who would continue to go back and forth and do the best that they can do. I think that is the only way that we can approach the issues that we're dealing with. And that's really the only way that we're going to solve the issue. And we need as many people as possible. And we need to galvanize as many champions and leaders as possible who would put out this fire. This is what I generally tell people. Look, if, if you look around, let's say even New York City, the skyscrapers you see, the trains, the planes, like humanity created this stuff. Human beings made these things. And because people created these things, it means they can be changed. So if we see something that we feel like, you know, this is not right, we have the ability to change it. But I'm also looking at the world today and the two twin revolutions that are happening, information technology and biotech. At least information technology is giving us the ability to change the things outside of us and get control over it. Biotech is going to give us opportunity to understand the things inside of us and how to change our inner biochemistry or whatsoever you want to call it. But if you think about the genesis of all this, it was created by humans. If we really, really want to stop things from happening, we have the will. Um, So what I like to tell them is not to give up, have a clear vision of what a future is going to look like, have the will and tenacity to drive at that future. Because if they are not the ones doing it, who is going to do it? And if they are not the ones taking those steps, then the status quo will remain. So they shouldn't look to someone else. They should look within themselves and do the best to, to add up to what Fulawa said, to do the best that they can where they are with all the resources um, they have. And it's not going to be easy. That's why it's called work. 
it's not meant to be easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I want to uh, share a, a story of a young man, uh, one of the fellows actually, Charles Obore, who found in this community the kids that they were teaching. is one of the rural most school. Uh, when we asked him, he was by the student body president for his school and joined our vision because he really inherently believes in it. And as a leader, he wants to go into leadership, in political leadership. So we came to this school with his uh, colleague, we placed him too, and found that the kids he was teaching, one, there were like 55 kids in the school, and the school is a, like there are kids around. So he worked with his colleague to bring in over now 350 kids. The school now is about 400 kids by enacting campaigns to go back to the parents' communities. And one of them was on um, uh, Mother's Day, and they, they call it Mother's Day. All kids come, uh, come back to school. And so they went to the kids that were in school around every community, every home knocking at every door saying, it's Mother's Day and mothers should must send their kids to school. It was amazing. But one of the things that they were facing is global warming and the, and the droughts were high. And so they took their kids, trained them on how to plant trees and really create like a hub of excellence within Mwanji. And uh, recently we took there our, our partners from San Francisco, the Bay Area, and they got to see it. And so they went with kid up to kid up to kid, every family, every community, encouraging everybody at least to plant 10 trees, 10 trees, 10 trees, 10 trees for them. And now so that the rains can come. And he's taken that, what he's teaching in the classroom, to tell these kids that this is a matter of life and death. The reason why you're not able to get food or whatever, one, it's global climate change, but also if we don't do anything now, our future is bleak. And so for me, it's not necessarily about, okay, like we have a choice. It's the sense of urgency should be we are inextricably intertwined with these challenges. We are part of them. Our kids will face them. So what I ask our fellows is, if not you, then who? If not now, then when? And then so they, I'm seeing two generations now of the leaders now that we are developing who are working on these problems firsthand, and they're also passing on these tools to this young generation of young people who are actually working on them from the grassroots, from the classrooms. And so for me, that's what really inspires me and gives me hope. And also, I have had the opportunity of traveling to Ghana and Nigeria and across Africa, and there is this amazing generation of young Africans who are just tired of the same problems over and over and they are ready to work together across borders. Our fellows are already connecting across WhatsApp and they share. When I was in Ghana, they kept saying, send me the information, send me everything, videos. I want to hear what the Ghanaians are doing, work together. And so for me, that gives me hope. So for those people, I would tell them, one, have that vision to remember that you are Probably the only person that would be working on this problem. And if you don't, it will affect you. It will affect your kids and probably your other community. So now, whatever you do, you need to work on it. And then number three, connect with like-minded people and others who are solving the same problem so that you can be inspired. When I'm tired and I'm, I'm scared and government things are not working, I can call Daniel, I can call Falawe. Now there's a, a, a sister in Tanzania across the lake who just launched Teach for Tanzania. That gives me hope and we are supporting each other. We need a community of like-minded, passionate visionaries who can do this work. And I'm sure New York to come up or the Rockefellers, they had to work maybe 10 or 5, but they, they drove the vision. So that's that's my hope. Well, we consider you all friends of the pod. Thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, we can't wait to have you back on Pate the People. Thank sure. you Thank so you. much for having us. Thank, Thank you for having you. us, Dere. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pate the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.